Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hello, Lucy. Hi, Alex. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you doing? Okay, I'm, I'm bemoaning the lack of sun, I'm afraid. I'd I, like to I get believe out there it, in the garden. But... I think it's all going to start, though, isn't it? Isn't it about to be the Costa del Sol? Oh, is it? <laughs> well, that's so. great. I'm looking forward to that. I will then get out in the garden and think jealously of all the tips you got from Joe Swift when you spoke to him. <laughs> I've been away for a couple of weeks and I have to say there has been a, an upspringing in the meadow in my absence, but I think that applies equally to weeds as delicious lupins. So what can you do? As long as you've got some lupins, that's lovely. Yeah. <laughs> well, we will see. Coming up on this week's show, an ambitious project to give Terry Pratchett fans a whole new listening experience and a look at South African artist William Kentridge. But first, many of us associate claims of soothsaying with charlatans or self-deluders. After all, who can possibly know what hasn't happened yet? But half a century ago, editors at a British national newspaper were so convinced by the theories of a psychiatrist that they set up a sort of clearinghouse for members of the general public to report their experiences of seeing into the future. Sam Knight's book, The Premonitions Bureau, details this peculiar episode, and we're joined by Joe Moran, who's reviewed it. Welcome, Joe. Hi, Alex. Thanks so much for joining us. Tell us first, I hadn't heard of the Premonitions Bureau. Had you? And was it fairly well known at the time? Well, both, really. I I hadn't heard of it, uh, but it was reasonably well known at the time. Um, It was was the London Evening Standard that uh, invited what uh, uh, John Barker, the psychiatrist who started it, called Percipients to... uh, to, to write in or phone in to the news desk. Uh, and it got quite a bit of coverage at the time. And I did do a little kind of search on digital archives of newspapers from the from the late 60s. And there was, yeah, there was quite a bit of coverage about it, but I, I hadn't heard of it at all. You can sort of imagine that if a newspaper starts up that kind of what effectively was sort of a hotline type thing, it would just be absolutely inundated. I suppose it probably was, was it? Uh, well, actually, it surprised me how that there, were, there wasn't a huge number of uh, um, the, the first call out. I think it got about 70 odd people wrote in, which doesn't seem like a huge number to me. Um, but you mentioned kind of the, the sort of idea that people who have these kind of visions might be charlatans or attention seekers. Uh, and they didn't seem like that at all in the book, actually. Um, uh, I don't know whether they were, I don't know to what extent the premonitions were accurate, but they didn't, they, they, they were, they didn't seem those, that, that kind of person at all. Um, and John Barker, the psychiatrist who started it, um, 
uh, he, he sort of um, followed up on the, the original, the initial calls and, um, and uh, looked for sort of corroboration. And he was fairly convinced that, that um, a small number of people did have those, these kind of, um, these premonitions. I suppose if a, if a kind of fairly serious sounding call came out from a fairly serious organisation and you did have anything that was remotely like that, you might feel that you had to in case in case you could prevent something. Do you know what I mean? Not, yeah. not even, mm. um, you just might think, oh, well, if I didn't, maybe, maybe people would have been saved. Yeah, well, there were two, um, there are two characters in the book um, who are the, the, the really accurate um, recipients. Uh, one of them is called, uh, which is called Miss Middleton, um, in the book, it actually starts. The book starts with her. She's a piano teacher from from Edmonton, and the other one is uh, uh, it's called Alan Henshaw. He's a he's a GPO engineer from Dagenham, and um, yeah, they, they they well they are not um, uh, they're, they're actually quite disturbed by the visions that they have, uh, particularly as a lot of them turn out to be quite accurate. They they predict a whole series of events like the Torrey Canyon oil spill and uh, the assassination of Robert Kennedy and there's a rail crash at Hither Green that both of them predicted uh, and they're not uh, they don't seem kind of um, uh, that, that, that they don't sort of get any that they don't get any sort of thrill about having these visions they actually um, they're, they're very disturbed by them uh, but yeah that was one of the ideas that, that John Barker had that, that it would be a sort of early warning system uh, of course, the problem with that, I suppose, is if you if you predict something and then uh, by by providing that early warning system, you stop it happening, then your premonition is is false because it's 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 you've made it not come true. Oh yes, that's a that's a that's a time loop problem, isn't it? Yeah. But can I just I, I just wanted to ask about the particulars of those premonitions in terms of like of of Hither Green or um, I suppose the assassination of Ron, Robert Kennedy. You might have been able to say was in the air I suppose but those quite specific ones how specific were the the visions or premonitions they were fairly specific I, I think the Hither Green rail crash was was coming um it was going to Charing Cross the, the train and I can't remember which one of them predicted that but uh, they were sort of eerily quite quite accurate they weren't entirely accurate um but but they certainly certainly met <laughs> Certainly convinced me that it um, that, that, that there was something in it. Um, well, one of the things that I, I, I really liked about this book uh, was that it didn't really have a take. It didn't really have a theory about whether the premonitions were true or not. Um, and I, I've seen a couple of reviews at the weekend for this book that that found that that they actually liked the book, but they found that aspect of it a bit frustrating. That. Sam Knight doesn't really kind of come down on one side or the other. Um, but I actually really liked that about the book, that it didn't really have a sort of takeaway or a learning. Um, and it, it sort of, one of the things that he says is premonitions can't, something like premonitions can't happen and yet they come true all the time. Mm. That's, what, that's what you're kind of left with at the end of the book. You're not convinced that they're possible. Um, uh, but they they seem to happen anyway, um, and that's why. Um, I mean, I read this book a couple of weeks ago now, and it's kind of stuck with me really um, because of that. I think because it's it, it doesn't sort of um, doesn't really come down on one side or the other. I mean, it, it all began as as you say in the review with with John Barker, and with the exceptionally well known and horrendous tragedy at Aberfan and that's what kind of started him off wasn't it It was what what sort of galvanized him I think you say uh that that people who lived in Aberfan had had this kind of unease and several of them had had visions that there was going to be a sort of disaster they'd had dreams and then obviously what happened happened and I just wonder how he, I mean, what, what, how did he then, he made contact with those people, I'm assuming. 
well, that was the initial uh, call out um, that the Aberfan disaster was, I think, think October 1966. Mm. Um, and obviously it was a kind of huge national story. Um, and um, uh, and given that it had sort of shocked the nation, um, Barker, who was, who was already interested in what's called precognition, the, the idea that you might have some kind of extrasensory perception of a future event, um, so he decided to to ask people if they'd had it had any sort of presentiment of it, and he contacted uh, Peter Fairley, who was the science editor at uh, the Evening Standard, uh, and he agreed to publicise that request. So that's when we got the initial uh, call out to these to these what he called percipients. Um, I mean, I, I think Abervan is is it's a kind of interesting case to start with really because it, it it kind of suggested to me that there might be some kind of middle ground in this kind of theory mm. of premonitions because actually when you when you see those pictures of um sort of waste massive waste tips above mining villages they just look incredibly dangerous and precarious and um uh, those those waste tips had long worried the the locals at Abafan. Um so you could imagine how even if you couldn't predict the future, that there might be something that happens in your unconscious mind. Or you know, we are predictive beings, aren't we? Human beings, we are we are we rely on um, forecast. We're, we're kind of super forecasters, really. We, we, we rely on kind of predicting the future and making the story out of our lives um so you could imagine with something like Abafan that that they're, they're, that you might have kind of omens and portents just from the evidence around you just kind of looking at those tips and just kind of that that would all to me that would already make you make you uneasy yes that's absolutely struck me that 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 actually was a sort of rational explanation that if you were living somewhere that seemed precarious and dangerous, well, not only might you, as you say, you know, consciously worry about it, but it would not be beyond the realms of imagination to think it would, you might dream about something. I mean, we often dream about disastrous things happening and often they do have a kind of realism, don't they? Yeah, I mean, that, and that's what I was left with at the end of the book. I couldn't quite get my head around the new physics. There's quite a lot about the new physics in, in the book about, about quantum mechanics and uh, the, the, the fact that um, time is not necessarily linear, that the, that the linearity of time is negotiable. And I couldn't quite get my head around that. And I don't think most of us can because it doesn't sort of make sense in terms of our own. The, the sort of d- direction of our own lives and, and our deaths, um, but I, I was left with the sense that yeah, maybe human beings are wiser than we know. That we might be able to pick up kind of symptoms or portents, and just in the atmosphere that we couldn't necessarily articulate or necessarily kind of prove or kind of argue logically. Um, but that we that 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 might actually be what gives us those premonitions. I was very struck by that idea that you had a psychiatrist, and obviously he might be exactly as you say, sort of um, trying to tune in to, to what was going on in people's minds, and indeed they're not entirely conscious minds. And yet you also have this this other idea, this new physics, as you say, that's actually saying, well, no, it's not a matter of individual psychiatry and psychology. It's actually the case that this could be, because, of course, you know, our first thought is, well, you can't predict the future because it hasn't happened. But it does actually rely on kind of disrupting time entirely if you believe that that's not the case, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think what's clever about that, I mean, he's an amazing character, this this John Barker is that he's um you're never quite clear what his position is he's kind of interested in the new physics he's also interested in this conscious mind um and he's kind of driven by lots of different motives um as is actually Peter Fairley the, the science editor of the standard who he, who he kind of hooks up with. um mm. and they're they're sort of quite conflicted they're, they're um you're not you're not really sure whether well, it's a, they're doing it for a whole series of motives. It's partly genu- a genuine sort of spirit of inquiry. Uh, it's a 
probably a sort of genuine altruism that they that they want to kind of warn people of these these possible tragic events. Um, but there's also quite a bit of ambition as well. Um, you know, they both kind of quite like the attention. They both quite like being sort of noticed. So, and I think probably quite like a lot of people, they're, they're, they're like a lot of human beings. They're, they're a mix of, um, of a whole series of different motives. So, um, uh, yeah, you don't really ever get a sense from the book what John Barker actually believes, you know, whether he's as mm-hmm. con- convinced as his percipients of the... Uh, and actually Peter fairly isn't it seems even less convinced um but they're not um they're not kind of cynical about it either the new physics you mean that's the physics that's that's coming out at the time about quantum mechanics and things like that which has kind of blown the classical model open is is that what you and so there's thinking well if quantum mechanics is real then we don't know how the heck things work which is I mean, we know more about quantum mechanics now, don't we? But it's still pretty bonkers. So it's so it was them investigating those that 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 area which was brand new at the time. Well, yeah, well, it wasn't actually that that brand new. It was um, uh, he, he mentions uh, a book um, that I hadn't heard of called "An Experiment with Time" uh, that was published in nineteen twenty seven, I think, by uh, uh, an author called J. W. Dunn. Um, and he um, he was one of these people who had dreams of future tragedies. Um, uh, when he was serving in the Boer War, uh, he dreamed of a volcano that was about to erupt on a, on a French colonial island. And then a few weeks later, he got hold of a newspaper and there was a, 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 a volcano had erupted on Martinique and killed uh, tens of thousands of people. Um, and his book, An Experiment with Time, was a sort of 30-year history of his own dreams uh, and their sort of intimations of the future. Uh, I think, actually, that, that book was a bestseller. And it was in, it was um, in print for, for about 30 years. Um, and I think it was Dunn's... They, they, used to, they would call them Dunn dreams, dreams that seem to predict the future. Um, and uh, it, that it was... Dunn's book that led to people leaving sort of a pencil and a pad by their bed so they could write down their dreams on on waking up um but he actually uses in 1927 uh, that that new physics that the, the relativity theory I suppose which you know Einstein and quantum mechanics um uh it's not really something that um uh, Barker is as interested in as a psychiatrist but but it's sort of in the air uh, and he also mentions in the book J.B. Priestley, a lot of his plays, uh, like an Inspector Calls, kind of play around with the idea of time and the and sort of disrupting the normal logic of, of cause and effect. And he was very um, interested in Don's work. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of in the air at the time, I think. Um, it's also interesting how obviously it's so appealing to people, isn't it? The thought that you might be able to ward off disaster either on a, a sort of large scale or just even in your own personal life by sort of more closely attending to your dreams or tuning into some, well, basically kind of special power that you've got. It must have just been so appealing to people. You'd, you'd want to believe that. I'd want to believe it. Uh, and people have believed that throughout history. Uh, we're, we're quite unusual, I think, in not believing it. Uh, if you go back to the ancient Greeks, you know, they believe, believed in fate, they believed in oracles. Um, mm. In the Bible, it's kind of full of prophets like you know, Isaiah and Jonah and Jeremiah. And uh, um, so they're, they're very interested in, uh, they were very interested in premonitory dreams and, and prophecies. They believed in them. Um, uh, one of the things that Knight talks about in the book is how scary it is to believe entirely in the randomness of things um there's one tragic um uh, uh, part of the Apophan story which is um a, a little boy who is who oversleeps um on the day of the disaster and he's kind of his his mother sort of gets him up hurries him off to school just you know just in time to uh, to be killed along with the other pupils. Um, and that's really, and, and we, we tend to be haunted by those mm. coincidences. 
uh, because it just feels like our lives hang on a thread, which of course they do. Um, but that's a very scary thing. Um, and we we are pattern making animals, I suppose, as human beings, aren't we? We we need to fight against entropy. We need to fight against the randomness of the of the universe by by making up stories, compelling stories that seem to give pattern to our lives. It did. It struck me that it was very similar to coincidence because, of course, you know, most of the time if you have a dream or whatever, the, the, the stuff doesn't happen. And most of the time there aren't coincidences, but when there are, as you say, we've got such a strong impulse to make a story out of it. We go, well, that must be, you know, that's special. That's a special thing for me because this thing happened. But um, I, I think like humans aren't very well set up to, to be able to think about coincidence. And maybe they, they're not very well set up to think about premonition for precisely that storytelling reason. Yeah. I mean, I always think, I always say this to my students about the, the sort of um, the the impulse to tell a story that that, that is is incredibly addictive, and I, I compare it to a, a greyhound uh, chasing, you know, those aniseed covered mechanical hares that they set off before the greyhound race. And the greyhound just kind of, because obviously they like aniseed, so they chase after the, the hare and they don't see anything else around them. All they're doing is looking looking at that, that aniseed-covered hair. Um, and I sort of think of that our, our addiction to story is a bit like that, that you can, uh, you're, you're just following the narrative line and it becomes incredibly compelling uh, and you just don't notice any of the other possibilities because you're just kind of looking towards the end, um, to the, towards the end of the story. Uh, and you're closing off all these other avenues, uh, the sort of randomness, the sort of chaotic nature of existence by just focusing on that one sort of the story. Um, and I got, I, I, Knight talks about this a bit, that just as so that the, the fact that we are, you know, we, we are pattern making beings and just how hard it is when you've told that story and when you've got that story in your head um, that seems to make sense of your life or something that's happened, how hard it is to then sort of reverse engineer it and, um, uh, and kind of imagine that actually th- that those events had multiple kind of millions of possibilities uh, because they've been closed off by your addiction to just kind of telling the story. Mm. What is it, do you think, in that in that sort of, you know, model of behaviour, which I'm, I'm sure is right, what is it that makes us addicted to stories, I wonder? Well, I think it's just, be, well, we're, we're meaning-making animals, aren't we, I suppose? We're, we, mm. we just, we need to, we, we, find, we find chaos scary <laughs> and yes. existentially yes. terrifying. Um, so we, we, we need, uh, we need to, um, make a sort of an arrow of our lives in some way. It needs to kind of move forward. I was really interested sort of sociologically speaking, I guess it's kind of allied, uh, in the fact that this bureau came after this period of mass observation in Britain. And I wondered if there was a, a kind of cultural enthusiasm for the idea of ordinary people, collecting and reporting information and sort of gaining some power, I suppose, in shaping their stories. Yeah, well, actually, um, uh, Knights doesn't mention mass observation. It's just something I'm interested in. I've, I've done, done some mm-hmm. work on. Mass observation was a sort of social research organisation, mainly in the 1930s and 1940s, and they would get just ordinary people to write diaries of their, their everyday lives or they'd... Um, uh, or they'd interview them in the street, uh, or they'd sort of um, write down things they'd overheard and people say in, in streets and factories and pubs. Um, and that was quite new. I think it actually came from newspapers. Um, think about in the 1930s when mass observation started, people just didn't, weren't really very interested in what ordinary people thought or had to say. Have you ever seen those documentaries, those kind of newsreel things where they're, they're, they're sort of ventriloquizing ordinary people and, and there's a sort of um, the clipped tones of the announcer sort of explaining 
um, their lives to them. Um, so there was nothing like uh, Vox Pops, which you, which you get all the time now. Um, people kind of ask, you know, there's too much, <laughs> there's almost too much crowdsourcing now, isn't there? So everybody's encouraged to have yes. their say and give feedback. There wasn't really any of that in the 1930s when mass observation started. So I think a lot of it came from the, the new um the new sort of mass media really newspapers would allow people to to write letters and and, uh, and sort of collate how people felt about things opinion polls started in the 1930s um so yeah i think it was probably part of part of that um obviously it would take a different form now because you wouldn't need to you wouldn't need to call into a newspaper or write to a newspaper you could do it all on social media um but yeah i think it was it was it was in the air um and i think the other thing that was starting a bit at the time in the 1960s was computers you know computer databases and that that was that was um that was part of their vision uh, barker and fairly eventually that there would be some kind of computer database that would that would collate all this this data from these recipients and and maybe even offer this this sort of warnings about future tragic events. So I guess the the sort of bottom line question is what happened to it? Why why did it why was it discontinued? If I say that, I'd probably give away the ending. Which, ah, which, uh, well, don't uh, do that. Uh, don't do uh, that then. Uh, we get into real sort of philosophical territory there, don't we, where people are always kind of saying, if you if you could know, would you? And I suppose it gets into quite uh, much more sort of troubled waters. Yeah, well, I suppose in, in a way it's, it's it's kind of interesting in terms of plotting that I'm trying to not give away where the ending in a, in a, in a book about premonitions, you could say that it almost doesn't matter doing a spoiler alert because that's that's kind of the point of the book really we can all just dream about it tonight and we'll work out what happens <laughs> we will. so i have to i have to ask you you know you, you make the point that that you you like the fact about the book that sam knight didn't come down on on any particular side but did you um no not really um which again i also quite liked um i mean it, it it's it, it's really like it's like a novel rather than a work of cultural history really it doesn't it doesn't sort of have a have an overarching argument and like a novel there's not a lot of editorializing and you don't need that really you don't it doesn't, you don't feel like you need to know at the end what you think about it you just left with it it's sort of, sort of suggestive rather yeah, exactly. than, than prescriptive yeah. well it sounds it sounds fascinating Thank you very much for coming and telling us all about it. No problem. Still to come on the show, we delve into the world of Terry Pratchett and discuss the South African artist William Kentridge. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. to the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas. Before we tackle another sort of premonitions bureau, one from ancient Greece, we're going to take a minute for a quick birthday celebration. Um, raise a banana daiquiri, apparently his favourite drink. I'm not sure about that one, actually. Um, I mean, I'm sure it was his favourite drink. I'm not sure it was a good idea to drink it. Uh, but we're going to raise a banana daiquiri to Terry Pratchett, whose birthday it would have been last week. Alex, what do you think? Do you want to have a banana daiquiri for Terry? Well, the thing is, I actually love a banana daiquiri. Do you? I don't think I've ever had one. It sounds kind of, it sounds quite... Oh, <laughs> it's take me back about 30 years and a student bar. And in fact, I think it was probably they thought daiquiri sounded too sophisticated so I think there might have been a bit more cream in it and it was called a banana bliss and having a banana bliss was the absolute height of luxury could only really afford to do it on a Friday evening but it was essentially a boozy drink for teenagers who still liked sugary creamy it was a milkshake that's with real bananas in like a milkshake with kind of rum it, or something yes something like that well you see I mean, now that sounds delicious that's probably the only vitamin c you got as well over the, the whole <laughs> It's a good reason for having one, though. I've changed changed my position completely. It sounds brilliant. Uh, well, I, I must say, we're we're actually making this podcast. I, I, I don't think the yard arm is even vaguely in sight. <laughs> and a lunchtime banana daiquiri to me Oof. does sound like the end of afternoon working. But perhaps this evening, and perhaps as as the spring nights and summer nights lengthen, we may find ourselves on our on our terraces. May we looking at our lupins, sipping our banana cream based rum drinks and thinking about terry pratchett yes yes exactly <laughs> well tell us all about this i mean this is this is a huge project isn't it it is because i think i think they're re-recording all the disc world books and there's a pretty amazing cast list it's penguin random house doing it and they've got andy circus is reading the standalone uh, small gods uh indira varma is reading all the series of the witches and there's other voices popping up. So Peter Serafinovitz is the voice of death. In fact, we're going to hear him in a minute. And that, of course, that, that personage, that character is very important throughout the series. And Bill Nye is the voice of Terry Pratchett himself in that he reads the kind of introductions and the footnotes. And the footnotes are a, a brilliant part of the books. So his is the first voice you hear, which seems to me to be quite apt, just and just right, because he's kind of dry and funny and warm, but... It's quite sharp. It's not kind of fluffy, if that makes sense. Are you a, are you a of, fan of Terry Pratchett, Alex? He's not somebody I, I would be totally lying if I said I'd I'd read in the manner that his real fans do. But I totally understand why he is so popular because they are, of course, funny and they're inventive. But they, as you say, they have that kind of sharpness, don't they? And and there's a kind of sardonic but not but not a kind of skepticism they are they're sort of the opposite to cynical I suppose yeah yeah they are and there's a I think there is a I used to be very there's a real no it's not a problem I suppose I think some people and I was definitely included in that are put off it's a real don't judge a book by its cover Mm. because the covers look very they're kind of brightly colored and cartoonish and they've got gold letters we were talking about gold letters last week weren't they these are these are yes I've, I'm not sure if they actually have gold letters, but I feel like they do. And they're sort of childlike, aren't they? They make that, that that's that's what you, you you're not perhaps primed by those covers to think there's going to be very much of sort of very much gravity inside. And in a sense, of course, there isn't because that, that that's not the mode. That's not the, the, the voice of the books. But they're full of pretty serious themes about 
power and democracy and all the rest of it, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And multiculturalism, weirdly, though, I mean, though it's not in any way as crude as that, any of it. It's all stories. And you're right. It's, it's funny. It is mostly levity. And also they do just have really good jokes. But it does it does have really serious stuff in there, I think. I'm a great champion generally of funny books because I think, funny anything actually, because I think people just often think it's a slightly lower art form than, you know, the tragedies. Is it going to be really too meandering? I don't think so because we have such brilliant listeners. For me to just go back to last week when, as you say, we were talking about gold embossed letters Mm -hmm. and we were talking about, Jilly Cooper, weren't we? And the fact that Riders was a good and it had a sort of precursor. And for some reason, this really lodged in my brain. And I was thinking of all those books of Jilly Cooper's that I loved to read as a teenager Imogen and Harriet, all those books that were just a single name or about the romantic trials. And I thought, well, did they have antecedents in things like Clarissa and Emma? Are they sort of modern romantic sexual morality tales? And I suddenly thought, well, this is how people think about doing their PhDs, isn't it? They have a sort of brilliant, if I say so myself, idea like that. <laughs> and then 10 years later, and they, yeah, I think it might be a bit late for me to start doing that kind of thing. But but I really became intrigued by this thought. Is Imogen by Jilly Cooper, the sort of 20th century version of of Clarissa? I, I don't know Imogen by Jilly Cooper, but that, uh, what I'd like is is that for you to read it and then tell us. Yeah, or I think you're going to do that. But- We'd yeah. rather you told us because it's be much, well. much more time effective if I just told you on the podcast. I'm <laughs> yeah. going to do that. Yes, let's yeah. do that. Anyway, back to Terry Pratchett. This is this is a huge undertaking, as you say. And I think by your excellent offices, Lucy, we do have a clip, don't we? We do have a clip. Yeah, we can play a, a little bit. So this is from a moment early on in Equal Rights, R-I-T-E-S, pun very much intended, which is about the first ever female wizard. And so uh, in this bit, there is a recently deceased male wizard having a chat with death who realises he has given his power to a baby girl by mistake. I was foolish, said a voice in tones no mortal could hear. I assumed the magic would know what it was doing. Perhaps it does. If only I could do something. There is no going back. There is no going back, said the deep, heavy voice, like the closing of crypt doors. The wisp of nothingness that was drum billet thought for a while. But she's going to have a lot of problems. That is what life is all about. So I'm told. I wouldn't know, of course. What about reincarnation? Death hesitated. You wouldn't like it, he said. Take it from me. I've heard that some people do it all the time. You've got to be trained to it. You've got to start off small and work up. You've no idea how horrible it is to be an ant. It's bad. You wouldn't believe it. And with your karma, an ant is too much to expect. The baby had been taken back to its mother, and the smith sat disconsolately watching the rain. Drum Billet scratched the cat behind its ears and thought about his life. It had been a long one. That was one of the advantages of being a wizard, and he'd done a lot of things he hadn't always felt good about. It was about time that... I haven't got all day, you know, said Death reproachfully. The wizard looked down at the cat and realised for the first time how odd it looked now. The living often don't appreciate how complicated the world looks when you're dead, because while death frees the mind from the straight jacket of three dimensions, it also cuts it away from time, which is only another dimension. So while the cat that rubbed up against his invisible legs was undoubtedly the same cat that he had seen a few minutes before, It was also quite clearly a tiny kitten and a fat half-blind old moggy and every stage in between, all at once. Since it had started off small, it looked like a white cat-shaped carrot, a description that will have to do until people invent proper four-dimensional adjectives. Death's skeletal hand tapped Billet gently on the shoulder. 
Come away, my son. There's nothing I can do. Life is for the living. Anyway, you've given her your stuff. Yes, there is that. Now, for more supernaturalness, if that is the right word, which it definitely isn't, um, we're returning to the idea of premonitions and precognition in a way, because we're going to talk about a new multidisciplinary work called Sybil by the South African artist William Kentridge. Elizabeth Lowry has reviewed it brilliantly for us, and we're delighted that she can join us today. Elizabeth, hello, and many thanks for talking to us. Hello, hello. Um, Can you... First of all, tell us a bit about William Kentridge. He's primarily known as a visual artist, isn't he, do you think? Yes, he is, absolutely. He began his career in the mid-1970s as a printmaker and graphic artist, and he developed his practice during the apartheid years of the 1980s. Uh, So he he did begin primarily as a graphic artist, but he's unusual uh, today in being utterly at home, whether he's working in theatre, opera, dance, large civic museums, small galleries, um, although he's possibly still best known internationally for his linear work. Yes, it's, I can't think of anyone else, really, who can operate in, in all of those fields. He seems to have kind of transcended boundaries rather amazingly. Yes, absolutely. He's worked, um, of course, um, in opera um, um, a lot. Uh, he's performed his stage Monteverdi's Ulysses, Mozart's Magic Flute, Shostakovich, um, Berg. So his range is very, very wide. Um, and of course, his animations um, have really put him on the map as well, his cinematic animations. Uh, so he's incredibly versatile. Mm-hmm. Can I just ask a question? Because I, yes. I just don't know anything about him, to my shame. But that's the point of this podcast. We find out things. Um, this the the thing that he went in all these different directions did it sort of happen organically or did he and did he start in one field and then just start sort of experimenting in other fields and then kind of come up with this sort of hybrid practice yes i think pretty much i think the the printmaking and the graphic art came first um, and then uh, this wonderful response really to um Kendridge was born in johannesburg um response to um, the history of Johannesburg as a gold mining city, which uh, which triggered um, a, a marvellous film series, Drawings for Projection, a series of animated films drawn over 30 years, I would say, in response to South Africa's changing political landscape. So the graphic, uh, the graphic practice was the way into um, this animation, um, the, the cinematic practice. And then um, Kentridge also um, trained himself uh, for some time at the Jacques Lecoq Theatre School in Paris, so he has a background in the stage, in physical theatre as well, um, and the versatility comes from all of these sources. It's one of the things that's so impressive about artists who work in that way. It's not just the, the sort of imagination, but they've got to continually be sort of learning and mastering whole new disciplines. Yes, absolutely. And the, the wonderful thing about Sybil um, is that it pulls together all of these strands. Um, it is multidisciplinary, multi, multi-generic, um, and it draws on, on all these aspects of Kentridge's practice. It's also a response um, quite specifically to the work of another artist, to Alexander Calder, um, who, of course, is well known uh, for his kinetic mobiles. Um, it was Calder who first injected movement uh, into sculpture, and um, Kentridge responds to this quite consciously uh, in the piece. Um, he's he was invited to create uh, "Waiting for the Sibyl" as a response to Calder's own film work in progress from 1968, and he draws on Calder's uh, mobiles, his idea of sort of mechanized geometric shapes of movement of making sculpture dynamic, and he plays with all of these ideas and combines those with his own graphic practice and his work in animation. So t- tell us about what what you saw, as it were. It's not on anymore, sadly, but it's travelling, isn't it? It's going to Germany and then to uh, California, I think. Yes, that's right. It was Sadly, it was, on, it was on here only for three nights in late April before it goes on to the Ruhrfest Spiele in Germany and then to Berkeley, California. Um, so the evening was divided into two parts. It's a double bill. Uh, the first part was 
um, a short about 20 minute piece, The Moment Has Gone, which is quite familiar to people who know Kentridge. And it's a very good way into Kentridge for those who don't. It's one of his signature short films. Um, it brings together his layered ghostly sketches um, and he brings them to life. In this piece, uh, Kentridge films himself while making City Deep, which was an animation inspired by Johannesburg's mining history. So he appears in the piece as himself, as his own doppelganger. And it's wonderful because he's reflective, he's skeptical, he's self-aware. Um, and he, he shows us how he creates, how he makes uh, his animations. We see his very typical images, smudged images, charcoal images, in this case of the Zama Zama. These are the illegal miners who work Johannesburg's city mine dumps. And they're, they're performing this very repetitive, deadening labor with pickaxes. And he shows us the devastated high felt landscape. Um, it's a reflection of endurance and want. And then as we watch, the animation takes us through the sequence and the pictures, um, the images that Kentridge is drawing become pictures that are hanging in the Johannesburg Art Gallery, which of course was itself built during the heyday of gold mining in South Africa. So it's this wonderfully uh, sort of animated um, suggestion of a landscape, of a landscape undergoing change. Uh, this idea of, of movement is there as well. Um, and what makes it absolutely fascinating is that he doesn't just film the process of the drawing or the drawings themselves, but every erasure, every change. So there's this fantastic palimpsest um, over which he will then map circles, triangles, lozenges, all, this, all the geometric shapes that have been suggested by Calder's own work in Work in Progress. Um, and at the same time, as we're watching this, um, there is a wholly new dimension added by the accompanying score for live piano and male chorus. So this is not just visual, it's also uh, auditory. Um, this is a wonderful, wonderful piece. It was um, composed by Kentridge in collaboration with two fellow South Africans, uh, the composer Kangna Malangu and the pianist Carl Shepard. And um, there is a male chorus for four voices singing, uh, in a to the accompaniment of the live piano. And the singing is astonishing. It's plangent, it's guttural, it's unabashedly melodic, um, and it invokes the Zulu style of Isikata Mia, or um, close harmony, a cappella choral singing. And then after 20 minutes, this magnificent sequence is over, and you sit there just thinking more, you know, I really, really want, I want more. <laughs> and then fortunately there is more. Um, then we get to the second half of the evening or the second part of the evening, which is waiting for the Sybil. And this is a chamber opera, it's about a 40 minute, 42 minute chamber opera, which was made for the Teatro dell'Opera di Roma. Um, and it was premiered there in 2019. And again, the music is by Malango and Shepard and, the libretto by Kentridge has been compiled from snatches of poetry um, from all over the world, um, which has been translated into Isizulu, Isikosa, Sesutu and Setswana. And uh, this, uh, this opera is based on the Greek myth of the Cumaean Sibyl. This is Waiting for the Sibyl is the title, um, which we know. We know this from Virgil, from Virgil's Aeneid. We know this from Greek myth. Um, and Kentridge reminds us, he reminds us, in, the, in his program note of what the story was. Um, the, the story, as, as he recalls, was that you would go to the Sibyl at Cumai um, and you could ask her a question. You know, you could ask her, would things go well for you? Would things go badly for you? Would your life be long or short? And she would then write your fate on an oak leaf and she'd place that leaf at the mouth of her cave so that eventually there'd be a pile of leaves. But then there was a catch. As soon as you went to pick up your oak leaf and to read your fate, uh, a breeze would rise and blow the leaves about so that you never knew if you were actually getting your fate or someone else's. Um, and this is the central idea, the motif um, of, this, of this opera, um, this idea of fate, this idea of uh, the unknown of what might lie around the next corner, of the impossibility of knowing what might come next. And once again, it's very, very cleverly done. It's uh, Kendridge's approach is again oblique. He looks really at the machinery of artistic production itself. How does he do that? Because that seems to me that when you said that, that seems to me very much a Jacques Lecoq 
thing to do. Absolutely, yes. I mean, in terms yeah. of the physical theatre, they look behind and you can see how it's made and then you make it. So you get both both bits, as it were. Precisely. It's 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 very reminiscent of Jack Lecoq and also of, I think, the ballets of Michael Clark, the Scottish choreographer who was uh, very productive in the 1980s, late 80s. Um, the entire opera, Kentridge's opera, is performed to this uh, jerky choreography, um, this avant-garde choreography, uh, some of it slapstick, some of it, you know, is very physical theatre, it's even humorous, and it's all backed by flickering projections of type and film, again, selected animations from the first part of the night, but this time they've been monstrously enlarged. There are more of those Calder-inspired geometries, and then there are pages of text from the libretto itself, which are also flashed up on a screen, um, and it all contributes to the sense of the cast performing what the libretto calls the meaning's absence. So there's this surreal sense of the avant-garde here of, of, of meaning which is reached for but perhaps never quite grasped. Um, again, here there are nine singers, there are dancers, um, they inhabit a sort of 1950s retro office. Uh, and, and the set is, is wonderful, the costumes are, are wonderful too. Uh, this office has maddeningly noisy typewriters and there's a waiting room with infuriating collapsing chairs, which allows um, the physical comedy to unfold. Um, and the, the singers and dancers wear disc-shaped, very Calder-esque hats. They're sort of cartoon-like distortions of the round caps of officialdom. So we get this picture of an avant, this sort of avant-garde picture of a, of a mechanized society um, with a frantic pace that's really lost its way. And it lives by these absurdly reductive nostrums, which are flashed up for us. You know, for example, resist the third cup of coffee, you know, resist the third martini, discard all envelopes, medicine bottles, last year's socks. Um, that all sounds quite sensible to me. <laughs> It's not a pentagon complex, isn't it? Possibly. So it's humorous. Um, and then there are these moments um, which are which are not humorous. There are moments where the prophecies, the Sybil's prophecies, such as they are, are are astringent. They're they're bracing. They're very ominous. Um, the Sybil herself is memorably danced by Teresa Putimoyela, and she stands on the platform. Um, she twists and she shudders on this spotlit, spotlit stage. And she creates a vast moving shadow across the, the words of the libretto. And sometimes these are you know, darkly stringent. For example, you'll be led away at dawn. No place will resist destruction. Fresh graves are everywhere. And throughout the entire piece is supported and it's given a real coherence by that astonishing choral music, which threads through it it's plaintive it's gorgeous it's absolutely terrifying until you really do feel as Loretta suggests at one point that heaven is talking in a foreign tongue it just sounds it just sounds overwhelming I mean in a, in a really good way but the whole evening as you describe it sounds absolutely like you're sort of drenched in sensation and meaning it is absolutely overwhelming. That's the only word for it. I think it's quite unusual in the richness of its emotive, its emotional content. Kendridge is someone who doesn't shy away uh, from emotion. Um, the entire piece is deeply felt. It's, it has elements of abstraction, but they are always used in the service um, of, 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 of some human emotion, some human meaning. Um, and this is the paradox, really. Um, there's, this, there's this wonderful interlude, there's a key interlude uh, between scenes, and this, this interlude is labelled, it's called Rorschach in the libretto, which gives us these giant inky silhouettes. They're thrown against the curtain, they start to turn, and at first it all looks like more abstract uh, drawing. Um, and then as they turn, we realize we're actually watching a revolution in, in two senses, because they cohere. So they they'll, they'll take the shape of a leaf, for example, which then becomes an ampersand, there'll be a tree that becomes a typewriter. So there is this crazy coherence. And you realize, you know, this is actually what art does. This is that this is the artistic slate of hand of art. It's the magical summoning of order out of disorder. Um, and um, there's a sense of resolution of things being transformed, of things being resolved. 
Um, and the Labreche warns us again, sort of tongue in cheek, you know, resist the Greek tragedies. It says you will for 20 minutes have great happiness. It is not enough, but it is not nothing. And actually, by now you're completely succumbing. You don't want to resist. <laughs> you know, you think, you know, <laughs> you know, art may not be enough, but it, it is not nothing. And then the climax comes. Um, there's this absolutely stunning climax. The, this, the lead male vocalist, Conlecila Bonguana, begins this recitative um, about the inevitability of death, yours and mine. And he's discarding the Sibyl's pages, the leaves, as he goes. And of course, there's a, there's a pun here on leaf. They're the leaves of the libretto themselves as well. And then at the same time, the female vocalist, the lead female vocalist, Andile Lachuayo, and she's flanked by that whirling shadow of the Sibyl and, and the pages of the libretto flashed on the screen. And she begins um, this soaring uh, uh, aria, four or five minutes of resignation to the chaos and the futility of it all. And it's so sweet, it's so painful. You just hold your breath, you just wish it will never end. <laughs> so it is overwhelming. Um, and you feel that something has been postponed, as the libretto says, uh, you know, not uncertainty perhaps, not the uncertainty of being alive, but perhaps fear through art. And it's magnificent. It's absolutely astonishing. It's, yes, it sounds extraordinary. And the thing actually that, that struck me the most about when you're talking about it and, and writing about it is that, so it's absolutely full of ideas mm. and text. It's quite text heavy, isn't it? You, you quote lots, yes. lots of the lines there and, and, yes. and it's like the programme is text heavy. So it's very intellectual, but actually it was it 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 completely works artistically and emotionally. That that has as much weight, or maybe more. I mean, it works as a as a sort of emotional event and performance as well. It does absolutely, and there's also a fascinating um, parallel here, I think, uh, and you know, quite deliberately with you know talking of intellectual um, ideas or texts with Dante's Divine Comedy at, at the end. Uh, there's a sort of allusion there to, um, uh, you know, in, to, to, this, to, the, to the Sibylline story in, in Dante, where um, the Sibyl is really compared at the end of the Paradiso in Canto 33, I think it was, uh, to Dante himself. She's a messenger who writes down her communications from a god, uh, just as Dante is trying to convey the greatness of his vision of divinity. And the leaf, of course, is metonymic for the frailty of human language, for its insufficiency, to convey the truth of our experience. And Kentridge is aware of this, he invokes this idea, but of course he has communicated, the piece has communicated emotionally, intellectually on every level. Um, so it's immensely satisfying. The single only drawback being that we now have to go to Germany or California. Yes. <laughs> I can live with that. I feel, I feel California might be, that might be yeah. nice. I mean, we were talking about, about wanting some sunshine, Lucy. Could we somehow, <laughs> Persuade the TLS to send us. Yeah, yeah, just expense our trip to California. It sounds amazing. I mean, yep. the way you describe it, uh, it's so vivid, but but also sort of unimaginable too. I mean, it you know, it does. It just sounds the most extraordinary experience. It is. It's well worth the trip to California. <laughs> <laughs> Moving sideways slightly, you've got your own um, uh, intellectual endeavours coming out this week, haven't you, Elizabeth? You've got uh, your new novel is out with a really fascinating subject. Can you tell us about it? Yes, yes, of course. Um, it's called The Chosen. Um, it is a, a fictional, but I hope essentially true impression of the days immediately following the death of Thomas Hardy's first wife, Emma, in November 1912. And of Hardy's writing of Tess of the D'Urbervilles some 20 years earlier. Um, it's also the story of how some of the greatest love poems, I think, written in English, which were Hardy's poems of 1912 to 1913, came to exist. Uh, so it is a novel about, about storytelling as much as anything else and about grief and about marriage. Um, it features a, a writing career that's gone well, I suppose, and a marriage that's gone badly. Mm. Uh, it starts, it starts in 1912. Um, for 20 years, Emma and Tom Hardy, they're now in their 70s, have been living in virtual isolation, really, from each other at Max Gate, which is the large house on the outskirts of Dorchester, which she built for her. And they occupy separate rooms. They barely speak to each other. Uh, and it's quite tragic because once Emma was intensely involved in his writing, she acted as his copyist and daily support, not least in writing Tess which was the book that made his name. 
but their marriage has long been soured by his success and self-absorption. And then quite unexpectedly, one November morning, Emma dies. And in the days that follow, Hardy is still stunned by her, her loss, by the loss of her. And while he's feeling all sorts of emotions, including grief and shock, he discovers a set of diaries that she had secretly kept about their life together, ominously titled, What I Think of My Husband. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Imagine the morning you find that book. Oh, goodness. I mean, I'd write that in code, I must say. I, you know, <laughs> I'd find a way to... Oof. To keep it secret, yes. Well, they, well she, she, yes. she. This is actually based. This is based on 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 fact. Uh, she did keep such diaries. Um, they don't exist. He destroyed them very soon after he'd read them. So I had to resurrect them. I had to recreate them. And I imagine that, uh, in mm. particular, in these diaries, she accuses him of having been her jailer, and of having deliberately deprived her of the chance to have children. And of course, he's thrown into utter confusion. He has to start reevaluating his entire marriage. And himself. And the question really is, how will this anguished husband and poet, who's always found writing easier than living, respond? What is his reaction going to be? Um, and we follow him through um, the next 10, 11 days as he comes to terms with the past and, and puts it back together and tries to make sense of it. And as he begins again, the, the endeavor, the, the work of, of poetry, of addressing his experience through art, which is what we were talking about just a moment ago. It sounds completely, completely fascinating. It's, 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 it's a sort of, um, it's one of the sort of great literary relationships. I don't mean great as in successful, but because yes. it's such a it's such a it's such a, a strong and sad story. I suppose it is a it is a very a sad story. Um, it, it's sad because it was Emma's support of Hardy's ambition to be a writer that made her attracted to him at first. I think when he first met her, they were both age thirty. Um, his writing career hadn't properly begun. He was trying to write books which were not being accepted. And I think that's partly why he chose her, because she was supportive. Um, she had this absolute faith in his abilities. And she also loved literature. She loved reading. She had ambitions of being a writer as well. And of course, once she was Mrs. Hardy, these all came to nothing. Um, and the sad thing is that it seems that in marrying Hardy, that um, that, that marriage turned her youthful enthusiasm for literature into a lifelong prison. Uh, I think she found the reality of the literary life very hard to bear, not just fitting around her husband's relentless work schedule, but having to take second place to the constant pressure of an absorbing vision. Um, and of course, the couple had no children. And in the novel, their childlessness and the possible reason for it, which I won't divulge here, becomes really sort of the agonizing focal point of her unhappiness. And I think she must often have felt that in choosing her, Hardy had simply chosen to take literature to wife after all. Oh, I, I must say I've also got a tremendous weakness or, or a fondness, I should say, for, uh, for novels about novelists. And I've, I've got a little niche on a bookshelf into which this will fit perfectly alongside things like, you know, Adam Foles, which is not a novelist, his novel about John Clare and a lot of kind of Colm Toy Bean's work. You know, I just, I, I think that's so fascinating when novelists try to get into the heads of other writers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I'm really looking forward to it. Thank you. Thank yes, you. it sounds completely fascinating. And um, in fact, there is also a review of it in the TLS this week, right next to your piece, mm. almost as though we planned the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> All the very best for the novel, Elizabeth, and many thanks. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Joe Moran and Elizabeth Lowry. Thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Sophia Franklin. We'll be back next week, but for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye.
imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.